You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Matthew 24, verses 15 to 31. Well, brethren and sisters, we've been dealing with the Olivet Prophecy, of course, and I think we need just to recapitulate the history, just to bring us into the context of our words this evening. Trouble had been brewing, of course, for many, many years, immediately following the crucifixion. Nothing went right from then on, if you read the contemporary historians. But I suppose the beginning of the end was around about here in AD 62 which meant that it was eight more years to go before the destruction of Jerusalem. And really the the strife in the land took a great turn for the worse when there was a fight between the Jews and the Syrians here in Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of the Middle East. And that, of course, caused great consternation all over the Roman Empire. At that time, brethren and sisters, down here in Jerusalem, in AD 66, four years later, the Roman governor, Florus, was of course in control of Jerusalem at that time and he was one of the most corrupt Roman officials you'd ever imagine. And he had agreed to turn his back upon all the looting and the pillage which was going on in the land by the Jews themselves uh, on the basis that they paid him 10%. It was notorious all over the land that this is what was happening and the Jews were seething over this. Until in the end, of course, they, uh, they, they erupted in the city of Jerusalem and slaughtered many of the Romans. And that, of course, sent a shiver through the empire because uh, they, they were thinking to themselves, here's just a handful of people, uh, but they could see that they had real trouble on their hands. So, in AD 66, again the same year, of course, when this happened, uh, they brought down here into Jerusalem a man called Cestus Gallus from up in Damascus another Roman governor, and he came down here with several of the legions of Rome and he was to take over Jerusalem and put to this riot and and quell this riot. Well, the fact of the matter was he suffered a very tragic and a severe defeat by the Jews. Terrible thing. Came down there and he he marched into the city only to find that, of course, the Jews had placed themselves all over the housetops and in the street alleys and with the narrow streets of Jerusalem he found himself at a great disadvantage. And you know, they slaughtered those Roman troops and chased them right through here, actually through the Valley of Agilon, would you mind? Right through the Valley of Agilon, like in the days of Joshua, and they cut them to pieces. And only a handful of those Romans escaped. Now that was a, a, a tremendous thing. And at that time, it would appear that the, the Roman Senate was in a turmoil, of course. The government of Rome was tottering on the, on the brink of ruin itself as, as Caesar after Caesar was being assassinated or, or, or passing off the scene. And the Romans thought that this is incredible, that the, these people should be able to achieve so much against the might of Rome. And so they, they sent to Vespasian, who was at that time retired. He was a retired army general. Quite famous he was and had retired to some quiet island out in the Mediterranean and they called him back from retirement because they they thought this was so serious. And so here in AD 67, 
Vespasian arrived at Antioch here or from Antioch and landed up here uh, near, of course, the, the plain of Jezreel just above the Mount Carmel there. And he arrived, of course, with a, a quite, a, a, quite a, a good force of Romans. And what he did, brethren and sisters, he immediately went up here to a place called Jotapata here. And in AD 67, that city fell. The reason he went there was because uh, the historian we know of Josephus was, of course, a, a Jewish army officer and he was quite a renowned fighter and Vespasian started on him. It was quite a fierce siege of that little city. It took about two or three months before that city actually fell. And then what he did, he cleaned up the whole area of Galilee here. He'd gone right down through Judea, left Jerusalem alone, gone over here to Perea on the other side of Jordan and by AD 67 most of the resistance had been quelled. And then of course he commenced the siege of Jerusalem. At that time, of course, there was opportunity, a couple of opportunities actually, for the Jews to escape out of Jerusalem, which they did. And I'll show you in a minute where they went. I think I've already done that, but we'll show you again. But there was a couple of opportunities, and one of them was when, in AD 69, when they had surrounded the city and the army had all been set in position, uh, the Caesar died, Nero died in Rome, or was killed, he committed suicide, and, and they called Vespasian to Caesarea, and his own troops proclaimed him to be emperor. That's how most of the emperors got their job, you know. They, they were proclaimed by the army to be the next general, the next emperor, and of course you don't argue with the army. And Vespasian went back to Rome to receive that honour and temporarily relieved the siege of Jerusalem, which enabled the Jews to escape, as Jesus had said. When you see that city encompassed with armies, you get out. And here was the opportunity to get out. And then, of course, he left his son, Titus was the son of Vespasian. He left his son Titus there, and by AD 70, of course, the city fell. And that date in history we're all very familiar with. It's quite a tragic date in history. About a thousand Jews made a last-ditch stand here until AD 73 at Masada, which is right on the end of the Judean hills, and flat out before it, of course, is the Jordan Valley and the, and the Dead Sea there, quite a stark place. And there on top of there where Herod, uh, Herod the Great had built a fortress to protect himself from his friends, uh, the, the Jews had gone up there and established themselves on top of Masada. And of course uh, they lasted until AD 73 until finally they themselves had all committed suicide, about no, over 900 of them. And when the Romans finally topped the rise to get on top of Masada to crack the defences, there they were all in a nice orderly line, all laying down dead. They'd drawn straws and the man who won who got the shortest straw he, he killed everybody else and then finally killed himself and his own family it, it, it really it not only horrified the Romans but they stood in awe at the, at, the, at the courage and the tenacity and the fanaticism of the Jews and of course Masada has gone down in, in history as, as a token of, of a symbol of Jewish resistance to death and that was the end of it brothers and sisters that, that was the tragic end of the Commonwealth of Judah. Now when they escaped, of course, it, we, we know from the writings of Eusebius, who was a religious historian, that they went to Pella. The, um, the opportunity came, as I've mentioned, both in AD 66 with the defeat of Cestus Gallus and in AD 69 when Vespasian was called, recalled to Rome to be made emperor. <coughs> on those two occasions, opportunity was given for the Jews to escape to this little place up here called Pella. Actually, would have crossed over the River Jabbok here. It was around about where the River Jabbok is. You remember the incident with Jacob. And over there, in the, what is known in the Bible as the watercourses of Reuben, 
because the tribe of Reuben had that area in the Old Testament and all that area is sort of laced with ravines because the water comes flowing down on the plateau of Gilead and it spills over the, the, uh, the cliff there and cuts these little ravines as it spills into the Jordan Valley and it makes it an ideal place uh, for refuge and for hiding. And that's where they went, into that place. And the, those who had heeded the words of the Lord Jesus Christ escaped to Pella, as our, as our hymn says, and we sing that sometimes. So we take up the record then and we come to verse 16 where we, or verse 15, where we just left off last time. And in this section, brethren and sisters, we have the warning of the Lord Jesus Christ of those last days as it was for them. And of course, as we say, that the prophecy seems to be divided fairly evenly between the events of AD 70 and of course we believe in verse 29 and 30, more particularly of our own day. And it seems to be, as it were, that there's a, little, there's a, there's a cameo of what happened then as what's going to happen in the future. It may not be exactly the same, but the warnings are there for us all. So we don't want to think to ourselves, well, what he said to them in AD 70 doesn't apply to us, because I think in principle it does. And we need to heed that. And he said to them in verse 16, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And then he makes this point, And let him which is on the housetop come not down to take anything out of his house. Now that's interesting, brothers and sisters, because, you see, under the law of Moses, there was a special way they, they built their houses. And they were built for this special way for a reason. And it's like this, you see. But in the law, in Exodus chapter 30, when God was describing the altar of incense here, this little altar of incense, this is a photocopy, of course, straight from the scripture, and you'll notice there that in verse 3 it says, And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof, and the sides thereof. And you'll notice the little numbers, 3 and 4 there, because there's a marginal alternative as the better Hebrew rendition. And the margin says, Roof and walls. Roof and walls. So this is described as the roof and the walls. It's the only piece of furniture described in architectural terms. Now when they had to make their houses, it said, <coughs> When thou buildest a new house, then thou shalt make a battlement for thy roof, that thou bring not blood upon thine house, if any man fall from thence. And of course what it meant is they had made their houses like something like this, with a flat roof, and they had this battlement around, this balustrade around here to protect people from falling off the edge. And so what you find, brothers and sisters, that this really was replicating that. And the point being made in Israel was that every house was in itself a house of prayer. Our family home should be a house of prayer. That little altar of incense was a model of everybody's house. I believe that Jesus would have had that in mind, as well as, of course, the prophecy of Isaiah, <laughs> when he said that my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. If the Jews had this privilege of being in the truth, as it was, of course, and understanding the principles and so that their homes could be houses of prayer, why can't the God provide the same for all nations? So that's how they made their houses. Now we have, of course, <coughs> we're indebted to the Lord Jesus Christ for telling us that people could go up onto the top of that roof and they could come down again without necessarily going into the home, which meant, of course, there had to be an outside staircase here somewhere for people to, <coughs> to, to access that roof and to exit that roof without necessarily going back inside that house. So obviously then, the whole purpose of building a house like that 
was to provide space and solitude for people to pray. And, and you know, Acts chapter 10 says, and it was about the sixth hour, and P- Peter had gone on the housetop to pray. So there you are. So we do have, therefore, uh, that reference in Scripture as a couple of others to indicate that that was the purpose of that flat roof. And so when Jesus said, don't come down off that rooftop into your house again, don't worry about what's inside, go for your life. You haven't got time to worry about that. Now, people would be up there uh, if they were there for the right reasons, according to that little symbol there, uh, then they'd be up there to pray. But that's not the only way in which housetops were used, brethren and sisters. And here's the warning. Because they were ideal places, especially on the balmy summer nights, to have a party. And for other reasons. You remember that David, when he'd sent his army off to fight the Ammonites and over to Rabar in, uh, in Gilead, uh, he was home and he was idle, wasn't he? And he went on the housetop. And from that housetop, of course, he was caused to to be drawn aside of his own lust and enticed in the matter of Bathsheba and a tragic incident in his life. But look at Isaiah 22. Imagine what would happen if this was our attitude upon the housetops and the, the Romans were coming, brothers and sisters. And This is what was happening in, in the days of, of the invasion that was to come in, in Hezekiah's day when the Assyrian was going to come down upon the land. And here in Isaiah 22, we read in verses 1 to 3, the burden of the valley of vision. Notice that? Valley of vision? That's that's an anomalous term. You see, without a vision, the people perish. You're not likely to see much in a valley. So this is dealing, brothers and sisters, with people without a vision. And it's exactly the principle of the chapter. They were in a valley of vision. That's interesting. He says, What aileth thee now that thou art wholly gone up on the housetops? Thou art full of stirs, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Thy slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All thy rulers have fled together. They are bound by the archers. All that are found in them are bound together, which have fled from far. Now, what, what that is saying is this. God says, what are you doing on the housetop? And they're up there, brothers and sisters, and they're having a great time. Verse 13. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. Now the whole of that chapter is about this, that with the impending invasion, there had settled over the people in these days, in Hezekiah's days, prior to Hezekiah, They'd settled over the people this fatalistic attitude that who cares? We can't beat the Assyrian. He's coming down. There's no way we can beat him. So you see that the dead men are not slain with the sword nor dead in battle. They'd capitulated. They weren't bound by the archers and their arrows, just simply by the archers. They didn't have to fire a shot. And their attitude was, well, it's all over, boys. Uh, we got no way out of this problem. Eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. And they did that on the housetops, where there ought to be a matter of prayer to God, faith in God. And you know, brothers and sisters, it's very interesting that this chapter is quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul deals with the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. Think of that, out of that chapter. That's, that's what they didn't have. 
So you see, you know, we can abandon ourselves in life. We can say, well, oh well, so what? So what? Uh, you know, let, let's take the most out of life and let, let's see if we can get the most out of life and, and, and who cares type of thing. You say, well, we wouldn't do that. Well, we probably wouldn't. But, you know, brothers and sisters, it's sometimes circumstances come that you do get depressed and, and despondent and, and you let the world get on top of you and sometimes ecclesial life and sometimes our own inability to rise above our weaknesses and we can have a despondent attitude like that and, and we may not say exactly what these people were saying but something similar. Now, did, they did that on the housetops. So you imagine people in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ and when he was warning them and later on when he'd been crucified and risen to heaven above that after that there was still that class of people in Israel who were careless and were up on the housetops for the wrong reasons. Well, says the Lord in, in Matthew 24, when we go back there, if you're up there, he said, and hopefully we're there for the matter of prayer, and we see the Roman armies approaching, we, we hear the words of our Lord, and he's saying to us, there they are, I told you about it, here comes the abomination of desolation, you ought to understand Daniel's prophecy, this is what Daniel was talking about, a nation from far whose tongue you won't understand, and a fierce countenance, the little horn of the goat, the fourth beast and so on, and here he comes and they should have had a clear, unmistakable view of that prophecy. There should have been no valley of vision. They should have been on mountaintop seeing that. We should be way up on the mountaintop seeing that, not down in valleys where you can't see a thing. And Jesus warned them and he said, now when that happens, don't come to take anything out of your house. Uh, in Luke's Gospel, uh, dealing with a different era, uh, the Lord made mention of the same thing and he said, don't come to take the stuff out of your house. Now, we're incredible, brothers and sisters, the way that we have the, uh, the ability to, to accumulate stuff. Uh, I'm no exception. I'm not here to lecture you or to you know, talk down to you about that. I'm just as probably caught up in this as, as most other people are in our own age and generation. To us, it's the norm. It's, it's just life. You know, it's the way we live. And I think sometimes we become oblivious to the realities of life because of what we consider the normal circumstances which surround us. But stuff accumulates, doesn't it? And, you know, we, we at the time of the end, we, I mean, we say to ourselves, and it's so logical, we say, well, you know, I'll buy this and I'll buy that and it means nothing to me. I mean, it's, you know, it's a necessity of life or whatever. It might be a bit luxurious, but... There again, we got the money and, we, and so on. And, and we say to ourselves, brothers and sisters, when Christ comes, who's going to worry about that? And that's logical. Because we, we don't know exactly the nature of our calling. It would appear that he shall send forth his angels, that they will come and get us. And I suppose it will be unmistakable. And I, and I, I would imagine that if that happens, we'll say to ourselves, well, well what, who cares about the house or what's in the house? But I wonder... I wonder about that. Maybe there are things, brothers and sisters, that we, we haven't thought about. Maybe things will happen that we could never think about. And it might be a time of testing when we might think it's ever so clear that at that time it may not be clear. And we might be like Lot's wife. And we might look back. Who knows? I don't know. But it, 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 I say some people have said to me, "Oh, but John, come on, we, we will know." And who would care? But who knows? We, we don't know, brothers and sisters. And we, I don't believe that we can we can fob life up like that. And I think if our heart is with it, it'll happen. We'll look back. And Jesus said, "Don't go back. 
down the outside staircase, don't resist that temptation to dash in and put something under your arm, something precious to you, forget it, get out. Don't waste a second. Now in verse 18 he said, Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. So not everybody would be on the housetop. There'd be some people in the field. They wouldn't be at home. And here, brothers and sisters, when it speaks about clothes, in the Greek it's actually in the singular. Neither let him come to take his tunic or his coat. And the reference is to that long flowing garment which was an all-purpose garment. It, it served all purposes. They, they had this garment which they'd wrap around themselves in a fairly loose fold for the, sometimes the weather would be quite oppressive but some, the heat would be dissipated in, in certain ways which they did that but because this was rather voluminous cloak they had it, it served all purposes because it, it did for their travel and when at night they would unwrap it partly and, and use it as a mattress. It, it, became a, it was an all-purpose garment. We need it. You just can't, you know, you might, you go away on a holiday or, or on a trip somewhere, you, you might need this, that, but you need that. That's the one thing you do need, is that tunic. Jesus said, forget it, forget it. So even the basic garment, forget that. He said, don't worry about coming out of that field. You go for your life and get out, flee from the Judea, get right out of it. Big trouble is coming. Now he then talks about, you know, I hope it's not in the winter, I hope it's not on the Sabbath day and he talks about those that are with child. And you know, brethren and sisters, it's clearly obvious that as the Lord made those points about winter and the Sabbath, it's obvious he didn't know the day nor the hour. And Mark says he didn't. And Lord said himself he didn't know that. Of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not even the sun. And it's obvious, isn't it? Because he, he didn't know whether it would be winter or summer or he didn't know whether it was going to be uh, a time of the Sabbath or not the Sabbath. And so he was warning the people. And, and the whole point about that is, brothers and sisters, is that God is not going to wait until your circumstance or my circumstance is just right to, for the Lord to come. I'm not going to do that. It, it, you know, we talk, sometimes like to think that God so loves us and we're such precious people that he, he, he will, you know, make the circumstances all fit the case for us, just for us. Well, he won't. He's warned us what's going to happen. It's all in his Bible. He's a responsible God. He does love us. He does care. But he's told us. We don't know the day nor the hour. But he's told us to be ever in a state of readiness. And if we're not in a state of readiness, well, it could be winter as far as we're concerned. It could be a similar thing as the Sabbath as far as we're concerned. For the women it could be with child as far as we're concerned. I mean, we could get caught in any circumstance and those circumstances are not going to be specially ordered for every individual. No way are they. You know, when, when, when the angels came to Abraham with that most important message uh, that God was going to visit the earth and Abraham would have a child through Sarah, that was not the reason they came. They did not come there especially to do that. The Genesis record is clear as crystal. They came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and almost as an afterthought they went and told Abraham what they were going to do. God said, oh, Abraham's my friend. I'll tell him what I'm about to do. He didn't come down to tell him, but he condescended to tell him. But the thing was that the wickedness of that city had come up before God's attention, brothers and sisters, and that was to determine the time of the end. Much the same as when God was told Abraham that when the iniquity of the Amorites is full, then your seed will inherit the land. He didn't say when your seed is in the right attitude, 
when circumstances suit them, then they'll go and look at it. No, it's when the iniquity of the Amorites are full. And there was the warning. And it's the same today, brothers and sisters. It's the same today. Everything's not going to be ordered just exactly as we want it. And this is, I believe, the great warning here. Now, verse 19, you see, Woe unto them that I would child, and then we give suck in those days. And the Lord, being a compassionate man, he would foresee the great difficulties in this. When he was on the way to the cross, you might remember, when the daughters of Jerusalem, they were hired mourners, were, were surrounding him and weeping and wailing to try and, in a professional way, to, to give him some help. He said, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And he warned them about women and children, that there'd be great suffering at this time, brothers and sisters. There really would. They needed to think about that. And he says, and you pray that your flight be not in the winter. And of course we can imagine, can't we, that, that uh, travelling in the winter in those days would be rather hazardous. They didn't have bitumized roads and of course uh, you know, motor cars that were sort of waterproofed and things like that. They didn't have that and, and it was very bitter and cold. The Judean hills get quite heavy snowfalls in the winter. And, and it would be for a woman and her children in, 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 trying to get through the, uh, the, you know, through the ranks of the Romans, perhaps at dark at night, uh, trying to dodge the, uh, the rapacious Romans. It, it would be extremely difficult in wintertime, nor on the Sabbath day. But you say to yourself, well, who's going to keep the Sabbath day? I mean, who would be fooled enough to, in those circumstances to keep the Sabbath day? You know who would? The Jews. They'd just be fooled enough to do that. Because that's how fanatical they were. As if God intended that that should be the way the Sabbath would be kept. That was never the purpose of the Sabbath at any rate. But the Jews thought it was. And you see, brothers and sisters, the historian says that, you know, in the days of Nehemiah, what happened? That there were the merchants coming from the over from the regions of Sidon and Tyre, where the, of course, all the, uh, the merchant, the fleets of the world came in there, and there were merchants brought their wares, especially fish, and they were, in the days of Nehemiah, selling that on the Sabbath day uh, at the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And then the Jews were out buying it on the Sabbath, just absolutely blatantly disregarding the Sabbath, the Sabbath principles. And Nehemiah ordered the gates to be locked and warned those merchants that he'd draw and quarter them if they didn't get out of the place. Well, they locked the gates and it's recorded in history that the Jews practised that right up until AD 70. What if they locked the gates on you? You see, it's like being too late, isn't it? You never anticipated that circumstance. And you suddenly decide at the late hour when you're trying to hang on to what you got and to you know, get the most out of this life and you're torn between the two and you leave things to the last minute you make a last-minute decision, oh, I better go, and the gates are locked. Oh, I word, there's a, there's a warning in that, brothers and sisters, isn't there? There's a big warning in that. You know, one of the, I find one of the most frustrating things in life, it, 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 in just normal circumstances, is this attitude is that don't panic, we'll do it tomorrow. It never gets done. I get criticised by my family. They say, Dad always panics. Dad panics, yes, because Dad knows if you don't do it now, you won't do it. It won't be done. And lo and behold, it's not done. It's like making that last minute decision and the gates are locked. 
and you can't get out. You know, we should be ready, brothers and sisters, in all circumstances of life. Is the good work come up? Do it now. Don't wait for it. There may be time in certain circumstances. But it's best to do it now. It was a good work to be done. And that's what Jesus was telling them. And he warned them, brothers and sisters, that those days would be very, very difficult. Verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. This was the worst period of Jewish history exceeding the period, brothers and sisters, that will happen under the Russian, or ever shall be. I'll explain that in a minute. But that's the point he's making. It'll be the worst. Jerusalem has suffered its worst. Jesus being witness. It'll never happen like that again. You say, yeah, hang on, but the Russian, he will. But you know, Jerusalem will survive the Russian. Not only survive, but it'll become great. It'll become the city of the great king. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. It'll survive the Russian. It never survived the Roman. There won't be 2,000 years of desolation after the Russian brothers and sisters. This is the worst period in history for them, for the Jewish people. No doubt about that at all. So it's going to be a terrific time of trouble for them. Now I'm going to show you that the same is going to apply to the Gentiles. That's what Daniel says. We'll have a look at that in a minute. But just think of this for a moment. He said, there shall be great tribulation. Now, look at Luke's gospel. This is interesting, because Jesus uses, or Luke records it differently here. (coughs) Now, Luke records it a bit differently, and he calls it this. He says, in verse 22, for these be the days of vengeance. Now, Matthew says, great tribulation, but, but Luke calls it the days of vengeance. Now, that's interesting. Why is it interesting? Because that expression, the day of vengeance, brothers and sisters, appears several times in the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, that's interesting, because this is not just a great tribulation, but it is the days of vengeance. So, it's all marked out, and it's marked out for a reason. There's a reason why that is. Vengeance comes because there's a reason, isn't it? You don't avenge something you're not... Concern with is a great concern. And the concern was, of course, disobedience to God's laws. They, they, in the end, they filled up the measure of their fathers and crucified his son. So the days of vengeance are upon them. I want you to have a look at one of those places in Isaiah. Isaiah 61. This is the one he quoted in the synagogue at Nazareth. <coughs> and here's a little hint about the days of vengeance. See what it says in verse 2. Isaiah 61, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God. These be the days of vengeance, to comfort all that mourn. Now, what was that all about? Well, did you notice? To proclaim the acceptable year, year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, we know what that is because verse 1 says this. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and, he says, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, that is an expression taken from Numbers 25. To proclaim liberty. Let's have a look at that. And here's a little hint about the days of vengeance. 
So the two words proclaim liberty are taken from here. And what is it speaking about? It's speaking about a day and a year. The context is identical because this is what it's all about, really. It says in verse 9 of of Leviticus 25, Then thou shalt cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. It's Leviticus 25 verse 9, you got that? Let's read that again because you've still been turning up some of you. We'll read verse 9 again. Then thou shalt cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And ye shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all your land. And you see what happened? So you see, come the day of atonement, they blew the trumpet at every 49th year to proclaim the year of Jubilee. So it's the acceptable year of Yahweh, a year that is acceptable to him. And the day of, oh, should have said atonement, but it didn't. It said the day of vengeance. And that's why Jesus quoted that in the synagogue at Nazareth, because you see, he knew that they wouldn't accept the atonement. And when you don't accept the atonement, you yourself become a sacrifice. The law said if you don't afflict your souls on that day to accept the atonement that God has presented to you, then you become, brothers and sisters, a curse and you're cut off from among your people. And instead of the day of atonement, the day of covering your sin, it's the day of vengeance. And when the Lord stood up to read that in the synagogue at Nazareth, he stopped, didn't he? To proclaim, he said the acceptable year of the Lord, and he sat down. And we all used to think that the reason he didn't read on was because the day of vengeance was future. It's not that at all. It's exactly the opposite. It's the year of Jubilee that's future. It's the day that was present. And it says he sat down, he gave, it says he, he gave the book back to the minister, sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him and he began to say, listen, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. There was their atonement. Now they had the privilege of accepting him on that day as their atonement, but because they didn't and because he knew they wouldn't, because Isaiah had said, these be the days of vengeance. And that very term would tell the Lord that they weren't going to accept the atonement. But the context was clearly it should have been that way. And so you see when Jesus said this is great tribulation and these be the days of vengeance, brothers and sisters, it was because of what happened to him. And because they said in the streets of Jerusalem his blood be upon us and our children. Oh, and didn't that come down around their ears? Brothers and sisters, it's been 2,000 years of history and some of it absolutely horrific history because of that statement. His blood be upon us and our children. Oh dear, oh dear. These be the days of vengeance. And yet the the privilege was that they could have made him uh, their day of atonement. And the year of Yahweh's acceptance, the jubilee year, could have been theirs. But no. And as I say, because Isaiah used that term, the Lord would know by reading that that they weren't going to accept it. Otherwise it would have said to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of atonement of our God. But it didn't. And so he pointed out to them, these be the days of vengeance. 
Now coming back to Matthew then, he says that there should be a great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world. Now people think that's a quotation from Daniel 12, but we'll have a look at that brothers and sisters. It really isn't. Because Daniel 12 is a reference to what's going to happen to the nations, not to Israel. As I say, that one was a cameo of the other. Now Daniel 12 says, as Gabriel was telling Daniel this wonderful prophecy, in Daniel 12 verse 1, he said, At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and Michael certainly was the one that God, the the archangel that God had had ordained should be the captain of the Jewish people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. So this is not going to happen to the Jews. Daniel 12 is not talking about what's going to happen to the Jews. This is their time of trouble. Because Jesus said, there's never going to be a time of this, nor ever shall be. And nothing, brothers and sisters, has equaled the siege of Jerusalem up to that point, and nothing will equal it afterwards. But what happened to them? In AD 70, according to that prophecy, Daniel says it's going to happen to the nations. And there's going to come a time of trouble in our day and generation, I believe, brothers and sisters, when we're going to see horrendous things. And, and if you can't see those clouds on the horizon, you are blind. Oh, look, it is building up to a tremendous climax. Tremendous climax. It's tottering on the brink. It really is in every conceivable way. And we'll see a time of trouble such as never was, nor ever shall be, said Jesus as far as the Jews were concerned. And then back in that, 20, in that 24th chapter of Matthew, he says this, Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Now what does he mean by that? Well, you know, brothers and sisters, for all the incredible tenacity and fanaticism and, I suppose you might say, raw courage of the Jews in standing up to the power of Rome, you know more Roman troops were used to quell the Jewish uprising than any other uprising in the Roman Empire? It's unbelievable. Something like 70,000 Roman troops were sent into the Middle East to quell the Jewish rights. 70,000. And history says that no, no right in the Roman Empire ever had that many amount of troops sent there. And they couldn't understand how these people could have, could have wrought such a tremendous resistance as they did. Only small people. But see, it's fanaticism. How then would the days shorten? Well, they were. You know, you go back in history, Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. 2 Kings 25 verses 1 to 4 says that he, he, he finally, when the, the final seed, there was about six deportations when Nebuchadnezzar took about six groups of people out of Jerusalem from at various points in history until finally he brought his troops down there with Rabshakeh and they, they locked that city up with a siege on the tenth day of the tenth month of the ninth year of Zedekiah. And the city was broken up and it fell on the ninth day of the fourth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah. So it says Kings and Chronicles and Jeremiah and so forth. Very plainly it says that. That's 18 months. 18 months. Siege of Jerusalem was all over in five. It was all over. Once they locked it up, it was all over in five months. 
and yet it looked, brothers and sisters, like it would go on interminably, but the way the Jews were fighting and, the, and the, what they'd taken into that city as far as produce was concerned and the amount of people that got locked into that city and the idiots went and burnt their own food, you know that? That they so got such was the, the crazy, insane attitude of those people in fighting each other, and this is why I keep saying in ecclesial life, we need brothers and sisters to always be careful what we do. We need to realise that we've got to stand for the truth. Truth's got to be pure. We know that. But I tell you what, if, if in our fanaticism sometimes we carry things too far, we will destroy ourselves. And this is what they did, and they burnt their own food in that city, and it was all over in five months. And Jesus said if it didn't happen that way, no flesh would be saved. And, and it wouldn't have, because you read what the historian says. You know, the Jews had created such a hatred among the people because they are, they are a, in many ways, they have earned every bit of the hatred that's fallen on their heads. They're God's people and we don't hate them and we, we, we bless them for the Father's sake. But brothers and sisters, personally, nationally, the Jew is an unlovely person and, and he had got himself absolutely detested in the Roman Empire. Not only here, but in Alexandria, up in Caesarea, in Damascus and in Rome itself. They, they, they banished them. We read in, in Acts 18, they got banished on one occasion from Rome. He sent them all out of Rome, did Claudius, because he couldn't stand them. And, and had that siege been drawn out, had the war gone any longer, then the Romans would have probably denuded the land of its inhabitants. But they didn't. The estimates of the slain range between 600,000 to 1.1 million. But it was all over in five months and it was all done for the elect's sake. Elect, who could they be? Well, they'd have to be, wouldn't they? The, those who believed the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who fled to Pella and, and when the hostilities began to die down a bit and life became a bit more tolerable, you survived. But if they didn't die down a bit and the, and the days of vengeance were prolonged, then the land would be depopulated. That's what would have happened, but it didn't happen that way. Although there was terrible, terrible carnage and a lot of people were taken off into captivity, a lot of, some people survived. And it was for the elect's sake that that happened. And Jesus goes on with his warning, brothers and sisters, in verse 24. He says, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets. Now here's a testimony of Josephus, the contemporary historian, about false prophets and false prophets. Look at this. <coughs> he says, There was also another body of wicked men gotten together, not so impure in their actions, but more wicked in their intentions, who laid waste the happy state of the city no less than these murderers. These were such men that deceived and deluded the people under the pretense of divine inspiration but were for procuring innovations or changes in the government and these prevailed with the multitude to act like madmen and went before them into the wilderness as pretending that their God would show them signals of liberty. Now he's not a Christian, he's not, he's not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said these false Christs will arise in the desert, you know and Josephus points out that there were murderers, the Sicarii within their little daggers were doing their work, but he says these chaps were just as dangerous because they were deluding the people with, with visions of freedom when there was no freedom. They were promising people liberty, come in the desert and you'll, you'll get a message from God, it's all going to be alright, but it's not going to be alright. And you know, brothers and sisters, prophecies of false security 
are one of the most dangerous things in life. One of the most dangerous things is a prophecy of false security. Daubing a wall with untempered mortar is what Ezekiel calls it. A very, very dangerous thing. And, and, and Jesus said, these false Christs and false shall show great signs and wonders. And they did. We don't have to go to history outside of the Bible for that. We've got Simon in Acts chapter 8 who set himself up as a great one who, who was there practising his sorceries until he saw the power of the Spirit in his, his eyes and he came out of his head when he saw it happen. He, he was just a charlatan. He was a fake. But the people thought he was marvellous. Sin himself as a great one in Acts chapter 8. That, that's recorded in the Bible. Uh, then you have Elymas the sorcerer, you know, the one that Paul blinded. The sorcerer. And these people were, were magicians, clever people, sleight of hand and of tongue. And they had deluded the people. And there did arise these great signs. We, we read in, in Second Thessalonians, don't we, brothers and sisters, about the man of sin, that wicked one who shall be revealed. And, and it says he will do great wonders and signs. And they do. And, and they practice all these things upon the people. And because they delude the people and because they, they, they psych the people up with their, with their, with their prattle and with their, with, with their so-called miracles, people actually do experience feelings. And they are cured of headaches and toe aches or whatever. And, and it does happen and they attribute that to the power of God. And they promise them liberty when they're really the slaves to sin. Jesus said, you beware. He said, inasmuch that if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect. Nobody is immune. Now, some read that as if it's impossible to deceive the elect. It really is not saying that. Actually, the RV, the revised version, puts it a bit differently. It says, so as to lead astray, if possible, the very elect. And the inference in that, brothers and sisters, is that it's signifying a difficulty, not an impossibility. So we, we mustn't think that, that, you know, that whilst other people may be deceived, we wouldn't be deceived. We, we mustn't think like that. You, you take second or two, here's the elect, second of Timothy chapter two. You see, it's not impossible for the elect to be deceived. And then they cease to be the elect, of course. <laughs> in the second of Timothy chapter two. I mean these words would hardly have been written if it was impossible to deceive the elect. And so in the second of Timothy chapter two. <laughs> and in verse 10 or verse 9 Paul says wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer even under bonds but the word of God is not bound therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may also obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory now if, if the elect is impossible to see them it's impossible to put them off the track then Paul's going to a lot of trouble for nothing but he said, I suffer trouble as an evildoer for that reason. Because he said, I want to ensure that for the elect's sake. And that would show, brothers and sisters, that nobody's exempt. Now you might say to me, well, that's obvious. We, why tell us that? Because that, that's fundamental. Well, it is. But you know, we can have a sense of false security that won't happen to us. It happens to other people. It doesn't happen to us. It happens to other people. Well, a lot of people have thought that and some of them are in the grave today. Accident or illness or something. And unfortunate circumstances that happened to them. And we mustn't think, brothers and sisters, that we're immune from this. We're only, we, can only, we can only throw ourselves on the mercy and the love of God if we're, if we're endeavouring to do his will. 
we can't put a stamp upon it and say because we are Christadelphians it's not going to happen to us because it will if that's our attitude. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't believe, he said, that you're exempt from this. And, and, you, and of course, if ever there was a people who believed that, it was Jews. And I believe this, there, I believe there are two sets of elects in this chapter which we'll show that when we come to the next, with the next few verses, probably not tonight, but, uh, but there are two sets of elects here. Uh, I think that Israel are an elect nation, but there are, these here are obviously those people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Jews, as the elect nation, they did not believe that they could ever suffer the troubles they did. You, you wonder why, because the whole history of their, their nation was troubled. And yet they went on blindly believing that they were immune. We shall not die, said Habakkuk, when, he, when God said, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans against you. What, he says? No way. He says, you can't do that. You can't bring a, na- a wicked nation against one that's more righteous than him, said Habakkuk. We shall not die. But they did. And they believed that they were more righteous than other men. Habakkuk learnt the lesson, but his contemporaries didn't. And that's the warning here, brothers and sisters. We're not exempt from these things. We, we only think we are. We're only exempt from problems and troubles ultimately if we put our trust in God. And even now we can't be exempt from all troubles and problems because that may be the will of God that we suffer that. But when it comes to deception, it's a different thing, of course. And we can only be immune from deception if we're clear in our minds about the truth, the fundamentals of the truth, the simple truths, Keep repeating them to yourself. The facts of the Bible, the facts of our religion, of our faith, the what's in our statement of faith and the things that are set out there, how logical, how powerful they are, how they lock together one with the other. And the truth of it all is so, so beautiful, how so fluid that it flows together as a whole. And when you keep that in your mind and you keep that forefront, then you won't be deceived. But many of our brethren and sisters have left the truth for another religion. We wouldn't have thought that was possible. But it is possible. And Jesus said to them, I've told you that before. And he had. You want to read sometime, but we won't go back to these references, but the 16th chapter of John, verses 1 to 14 are about that. When he's coming near the end of, the, of, his, of his ministry, and he's, he's, he's sitting there at the Last Supper, and he went over these matters with them, and he warned them of the impending troubles and the fact that he wouldn't always be there and that they'd be in dire straits and they'd desperately need him. So I've told you before, in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 12, when he came out of the Pharisee's home, having been in there for a feast, and he stood at the doorfront of that Pharisee's house, having just burst through the door because he had upbraided them for their hypocrisy and said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And you read it the other day. And, and then he said to these disciples, take heed unto yourselves. And he warned them what, they, what these people would do. So he said, I've told you before, and he had. And then he said, what they'll do, he said, in verse 26, wherefore, if they shall say unto you, behold, he is in the desert, go not forth, behold, he is in the secret chamber, believe it not. Now, isn't it it ironical, brethren and sisters, how true it is that false claims can never be sustained with open scrutiny. If you're going to present a false claim, it's going to be in secret or in isolation, in a desert or in a secret chamber. You don't ever see false claims put up to the scrutiny of the light of the dark. People have got a theory 
They know it's deviant from the word of God. They, they, they know it's different. And they very rarely present that publicly. But whisper in somebody's ear about this, what they've seen for themselves and how that we got it all wrong. Or take you off somewhere to another place where the people can't hear them and, and get into your ear and try and defuse the truth from your mind. In a secret chamber, in isolation or secret, false claims never stand up to open scrutiny. One of the greatest false claims ever made was in 1914 when the Jehovah's Witnesses said that Jesus would return in 1914 and they packed the shores of Botany Bay with Jehovah's Witnesses waiting for him to come across the harbour. He didn't come and they said, he's invisible, (laughs) you can't see him. He invisibly came. It's in a secret place. It's in the desert. Incredible, isn't it, as it happens. And, and most control. I know there have been some controversies being openly proclaimed. I know that. But many of them, brothers and sisters, are being presented to somebody off on the side somewhere. A whisper in the ear or something or a bit of paper stuck in your hand. Read this in your, when you get a bit of leisure. And what, tell me what you, give me a ring what you think about it. They'll never stand the light of open scrutiny. It's got to be done in that way. But Jesus said, look, don't you be deceived, he said, for as the lightning cometh out of the west, out of the east, and shineth unto the west, so shall also the presence, parousia, of the Son of Man be. Lightning. They just had a bit of that last night, didn't we, brothers and sisters? That was a bit spectacular. I don't think that would have been any difficult for you to see the lightning last night, would it? You, I stood outside and watched it for a while. Quite spectacular. I didn't miss it. It was obvious, wasn't it? Now, you look at Luke 17. Look, here, here's... You see... When the end comes, it'll be obvious to those who can see. It'll be like lightning. This is interesting. When you come to to Luke 17, (coughs) now this is another context, but here's a little bit of explanation about this. Now let's read together from verses 20 to 24. Now you imagine you're standing there with the Lord, you're one of his disciples, and, and the Pharisees come up, and you're listening to this, and you hear him say this, verse 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. There's a little number in your Bible, if you've got one like mine, against with observation. And the margin says, with outward show. Well, we would have thought it did come with outward show. And you'd be standing there thinking, wait a minute, what is he saying? But he was demanded of the Pharisees when that would happen. He said, it won't come with outward show. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is among you, not within you, but among you, as the margin suggests. Now, that's what he said to the Pharisee. Now, if I was one of his disciples hearing that, I'd have to admit that if I was a thinking person, I'd have a bit of a sinking feeling in my stomach and think, hey, I got this wrong. You know, prophecies of Joel, Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel. Boy, I, I can't understand this, because to me, outward show, goodness me, and then he said to his disciples in verse 22, The days will come when you shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, you shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here or see there, go not after them nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of one part under heaven shineth under the other part under heaven, so shall, it also, shall also the Son of Man be in his day. Oh, you'd breathe a sigh of relief. Look, he says, and he took his disciples. Now look, don't misunderstand me. There'll be no mistake. 
It'll be like a flash of lightning from horizon to horizon. There'll be no misunderstanding. And then he gave them, as it was in the days of Noah and as it was in the days of Lot. Now in this context, I know he had the immorality in mind, but brethren and sisters, one of the reasons he chose those two things was because there was a little bit of outward show. I think people saw the flood. And I reckon people would have seen Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham watched a great pall of smoke and cloud go in the heaven. And there'd have been an explosion and a roar and God blew the biggest hole in the world. I think that was a bit of outward show. And so you see, he chooses those two things to illustrate what will happen. But what did he mean to the Pharisees? Well, you see, what he was trying to tell the Pharisees is this. What's the good, brothers and sisters, of looking for the kingdom of God to come with outward show when you're not ready for it? He says, you better see here and now that the kingdom of God is within you, or among you, as the Greek says. It's standing here, it's not within them. They were full of dead men's bones, but it was among them. It's here. So he said, never mind about you looking at it for outward show. You better start looking at it now that it's here and and there's no outward show, I'm just an ordinary man, but here's the kingdom of God among you. That's what he said to the Pharisees. Verse 20. But verse 22, and he said to his disciples, now, he wasn't saying one thing to one person, another thing to another. He was simply choosing, brothers and sisters, to warn people that it's no good looking for outward show when you're not ready for it, but for those who are getting prepared, there'll be no mistake, whatever. It'll be like lightning. It'll be like lightning. So shall the presence of the Son of Man be. But they didn't see him in AD 17, didn't they? Well, let's have a look at Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. How is Christ present in AD 70? So shall the parousia, the presence of the Son of Man be. Well, in Daniel chapter 9, brethren and sisters, this is what we're told. In verse 26, And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince, that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who are they? Well, they're the people of the prince. And who's the prince? Go back to chapter 8 and verse 11. Speaking of the little horn of the goat, the Roman power, which was symbolised by that little horn, it says in in Daniel 8 and verse 11, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. Now they're equated, you see. So taking away the daily sacrifice, which was preeminently a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ, was to take away the prince of the host. So the prince of the host is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the armies that are coming, the armies that are coming to destroy the city and the sanctuary are the people of the prince. They're his people. Because he's in command of their armies. They don't know it. Their station wouldn't have any idea of it. And certainly Titus didn't, nor any of them, like any idea, whatever. But the head of that army was Jesus Christ our Lord. You know the parable of the vineyard? Uh, that when he sent, the, the owner of the vineyard sent to get the fruits of the vineyard and they didn't have them? What should he do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? Why, he said, uh, he, w- he, will, he will come and miserably destroy those people and burn up their city. The, vi- the owner of the vineyard will do that. And Jesus Christ was the owner of that vineyard. My beloved had the vineyard on a very fruitful hill. It was his. And he's talking about himself. And he's going to come. He shall come and destroy those murderers and burn up their city. 
the people of the prince. And those who had eyes to see, brothers and sisters, who saw that Roman horde with the flying eagle knew that in that, in that army, at the head of that army, was the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the people of the prince. That's who they were. You, you read Dr Thomas in the last days of Judas Commonwealth on this. Absolutely magnificent. The way he expounds that from Daniel. And then finally, we'll make this our final point tonight because it'll be a nice place to stop here. We want to talk about these eagles. And he makes the point in verse 28. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Now there's been many ideas about this, brothers and sisters. I believe there's only one true idea. But, you know, people say, well, he's talking about his coming and the gathering of the people unto him, which he's not in this context at any rate. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, really. But some people think it's the return of the Lord and they, they see that, you know, as a vulture, as the word here indicates, the, the eagle or the vulture will come on a dead carcass so that, you know, he'd be inexorably attracted to that dead carcass so that, you know, the people will be attracted to the Lord. Well, that, that's abhorrent. You, you, you'd never find a biblical symbol that would be used like that of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ecclesia. It just wouldn't happen. There's no question what that is. You know why? Because it's quoting the Bible. That's all we need to know. We know who that is. You come back to Deuteronomy 28. Look at here. In Deuteronomy 28, when the curses would come upon the Jewish people, what did it say? In the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, read from verses 25 and 26. And Yahweh shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shall be removed, removed, and the Septuagint version has their diaspora, be scattered into all the kingdoms of the earth and thy carcass shall be meat unto all fowls of the air and unto the beasts of the earth and no man shall fray them or shoo them away. Thy carcass will be for the fowls of the air. Now, come over to verse 49 and 50. And Yahweh shall bring a nation against thee from far from the end of the earth as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. Brothers and sisters, that could never have been Babylon. That could never have been Babylon because the Babylonian tongue or, or one of the dialects, by the Babylon, one of the major dialects of the Babylonians was very much akin to the Hebrew. Matter of fact, Daniel is written, in, part of Daniel is written in that dialect. It was an, it was the, the Semitic people had spread right across that fertile crescent. There, there was a commonality in much of their language through there. That is not Babylon. It's a nation of fierce countenance which, thou shalt, which shall not regard the person of the old nor show favour of the young and so forth. And that nation would come from afar as swift as the eagle flies. The most, they say, according to the people who understand this, they say that the most diverse language from the Hebrew is Latin. Absolutely diverse, they say, is Latin from Hebrew. And the eagle, of course, was the, the banner of the Roman legions and if we've got any doubt whatever, brothers and sisters, that that is Rome, forget your doubt. Verse 50, a nation of fierce countenance. Have a look at Daniel chapter 8, and verse 23. When here's Daniel speaking of that little horn of the goat, and what does he say? Puts it all beyond doubt. He says in verse 23 of Daniel 8, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressions are come to the full, that is filling up the measure of their father's transgressions, a king of fierce countenance, there he is, and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And that's unquestionably the Roman power. 
So what do we find? Where the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Deuteronomy 28, they'll give your carcass to the fowls of the heaven. The nation's going to come as swift as the eagle flyeth. He's going to be of a fierce countenance. Here he is in Daniel chapter 8. And we read, brothers and sisters, in verse 13 of Daniel 8, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, is how Luke puts it which is again a quotation from this context, which is again linked with Deuteronomy 28. And so, brothers and sisters, the dead carcass of Israel was now ready and the Roman eagles had gathered and the grim warning of our Lord was ever so, ever so urgent and we, brothers and sisters, ought to see in our day and generation exactly that. The world is long since dead, twice plucked up, brothers and sisters. It's a rotting carcass. The day of judgment is coming. And it'll be as clear, for those who've got eyes to see, it'll be like a, a brilliant flash of light. And we don't need to be deluded with anyone telling us it's going to be any different. Don't listen to any fancy ideas. We know the truth, we know the simplicity of the truth. Stick to that, brothers and sisters, and be on your tiptoes ready to come down off those housetops and go for your life and forget everything that's behind you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.